In the first half of our series, we've looked at the events of the end of time, the signs of the end, the return of Jesus, the resurrection, the 1,000 years in hellfire. In our second half, we will look at some of the central issues related to the end of time. One of the more common questions I get asked is, why has the end of time taken so long? On the other hand, my unbelieving friends pose the question a different way and say, if God is love, why does injustice, evil and pain even exist? Tonight, we will conclusively answer that question. Good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the End of Time series. My name is Sharissa, and I'm just wanting you to know that wherever you're joining us from, from literally around the world, we're hearing from you. We are so thrilled that you are still with us on this exciting journey. Before Lyle presents this incredible presentation tonight, and I've had a little sneak preview of some of his thoughts, and it's really, really, really important that you are here. We want you to know that we are actually coming to you live from the East Coast of Australia for a very important reason. Reason. We want to hear from you. And so if as you're listening to Lyle's presentation, there are questions that come to your mind and you'd like to ask them to Lyle, please type them in. If you're on our YouTube channel or on our Facebook page and you're watching on the live stream, type them in your questions and I'll be able to relay them to Lyle after his presentation so that you can have a Bible answer just like that. And so uh, without further ado, let's listen now as Lyle addresses this important subject, why hasn't injustice ended? False prophets will arise and deceive many. Nation will rise against nation. There will be droughts, pandemics, and earthquakes. When these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption is near. I grew up in a Christian home in the Upper Huon Valley, south of Hobart in Tasmania. Now, of course, for all of you who don't know, Tasmania is actually the promised land. Now, my parents had a great relationship. It was one of those rare, they were one of those rare couples who literally never had a fight. They provided a secure and loving environment in the country for both my older brother and myself. We didn't start school until we were up. Eight, and when we did, it was a small local Christian school. Years one to six averaged about 10 students in total. Morning and evening worship with Bible memorization were a daily part of our lives. My mother taught children's class at church. My father was the leading elder. In my first year of school, I decided that one day I would be a minister. It was a child's calling that quickly waned and I became busy with all the usual distractions of country life. I first learned to drive the tractor when I was eight, owned my first rifle at 10, was allowed to drive the family car on all the back roads when I was 12. We had a huge garden, 100 fruit trees, 14 different kinds of berries. We never ate meat unless we killed it ourselves. We barely had to shop. One year, my mother averaged $10 a week for all our household needs. That would have been 1981. On my 12th birthday, my mother provided a party and invited a number of my friends. About four weeks previously, I'd just started high school and had to make the difficult transfer to a large city-based school in Hobart. She recognised that I wasn't dealing with the transition that well, and so she invited all of my country mates. My mum went to bed early that night, not feeling well. Four weeks later, she was dead. She was a nurse, 
and had contracted a golden staff superbug from the ICU ward in the hospital, which attacked and destroyed her heart. On top of dealing with the tremendous grief and loss, I'd always been painfully shy, and now I found that I did not fit in at all in the city school. All of the insecurities of puberty plagued me. I was considered to be a hillbilly kid who had nothing in common with the fashionable city kids. They were into computers, fashion, rock stars and sports. I was into tractors. My father, brother and I had the typically difficult challenge of trying to survive each day while grieving. Many of the refinements that my mother had insisted on in her desire to instill in us the Queen's etiquette simply vanished in the need for us three guys to make it. Naturally, my father transferred some of his need to confide in someone to my brother and I. Decisions were made by the three of us together and we became incredibly close. Our local church was amazingly supportive. For the next three years, the ladies helped with washing and provided homemade bread and savoury dishes every week without fail. We were so blessed to be part of a church community. During this time, I tried on occasions to have my own devotional life but it didn't seem to make any progress. As I endeavoured to assimilate more and more into the lifestyle of my new friends at the city school, religious interest all but disappeared. At the age of 15, my world was turned upside down again. My father remarried. Now, what many people don't realise is that in a single parent homes, there's a higher level of relationship between the parent and the child This relationship would normally exist between the parents, but when one parent leaves or dies, it's transferred to the children. When the parent marries or takes a partner, they transfer that relationship back to the new partner. This results in the child going through a divorce of sorts and explains one of the reasons step-parenting can be quite a challenge, particularly for teenage kids. Now, my stepmother is a wonderful person and tried so hard but a couple of weeks after my father remarried, I left school, found an apprenticeship as a cabinet maker. Then I left home and moved into an abandoned apple picker's hut out in the bush. It had no running water or electricity and an outside bucket toilet, and I lived there for five years. Now, I was seriously adrift and lost. At school, I had not been well accepted by my peers. Now the close bond between my father and my brother and I was gone. School and home had created memories of pain. All efforts and any kind of social refinement promptly disappeared for me as I lived a bogan, redneck, feral lifestyle. And of course, I was just a kid. I had no boundaries other than the ones I chose to make for myself. I honestly felt like I was swimming in a vast ocean with no land in sight and just keeping my head above water. It was at this time that God called to my heart again. At work, I associated with the usual good-hearted, swearing, drinking, drugging, promiscuous tradies. It looked like fun and the temptation was strong. On occasions, I accompanied my new friends to the pub or parties. They were glad to have me along and would give me free cola to drink all night if I was the designated driver. I now recognised that I stood at a crossroads in my life and I decided to give Christianity one last try. So every night, I would sit on the bench seat out of an old Ford XY Falcon in my bedroom, in front of my open fire, reading the Bible by the light of a kerosene lamp. Now picture the scene for a moment. The wooden floor of my bedroom was littered with 
engine part from various beat-up old cars that I drove. An old table with a pile of clothes on it served as a closet. The door, which had no latch of any kind, was never closed and opened onto a paddock. On cold nights, the neighbour's horse would stand with his head in the door, keeping the frost of his ears while I was asleep. Now, the first book of the Bible I ever studied was 1 John, and I borrowed a simple method of study, asking questions about each verse and journaling my answers. What does it say? Summarise it in a nutshell. What should I do as a result of it? I also picked up a great book called The Great Controversy. It's on history and prophecy, two subjects that you know I've always loved. Over the next several months, my life was completely transformed. As a result of this experience, I went from being a young kid who was completely lost and adrift in the big, wide, evil world to knowing exactly who I was, where I was going in life and what I was going to do. I was a blood-bought child of God and he'd personally come into my apple picker's hut and called me to serve him. Well, the rest is history and I can't begin to number the blessings that have come to me since. A life in which I've been able to talk about Jesus every day and get paid for it. An amazing wife, two incredible sons, two amazing daughter-in-laws, and of last, as of last Saturday lunchtime, our first beautiful little granddaughter. But the question always remains, why? Why was my mother taken from me? Why did I struggle so much at school? Why the family trauma? Why an impoverished start to my independent life? Why would God do that? Some well-meaning Christians not understanding the Bible told me that God loved my mum so much he wanted to take her to be with him earlier rather than later. Well, if that was the case, then God is more evil and selfish than anyone I know. Imagine ripping a family apart just so you could be friends with one of the family members. You liked better than the rest. Who would do such a horrific thing? What about us? Did we not love her and need her? Why would God do that to a couple of children? Someone else suggested that it was to make me stronger. And maybe it has. But I would say that if God is all-powerful and he loves us, then he has a multitude of less harmful ways of making a person stronger. Then there were those that said that God was testing me. Now, what does that even mean? I wasn't a follower of God for myself when these things happened. What kind of God would say to himself, oh, I'm not sure how strong that kid's faith is, so let's take his mother and mess with his family and see if he even loves me. What kind of a monster would do that? Of course, the reality is that tragedy comes to all of us. And I was actually incredibly lucky. To begin with, I was born in Australia, something the majority of people in our world would dream of if they had the choice. So many children have been born by no choice of their own into circumstances so infinitely worse than what I have ever experienced. It's hard to imagine. Born into horrific poverty or war, abused in every way imaginable until they are so traumatised that nothing outside of God's grace will heal them. In just one African country alone, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, there are 30,000 child soldiers. They are believed to be more effective than adults as their malleable young brains can be trained to have less of a conscience and less fear than adults. The standard procedure to create a child soldier is not to give them weapons training and survival skills. It begins by breaking their mind. 
goes something like this. Step one, kill his father in front of him with a machete. Step two, rape his mother, sisters in front of them, him before killing them. Then, take him to a training camp, fill him with addictive, mind-altering, health-destroying drugs. Subject him to non-stop, hardcore porn for about 10 days. Beat and rape the child mercilessly. Force them to kill a prisoner. Then once their minds are totally destroyed and they no longer have a sense of right and wrong, send them out in packs to rape and murder in the villages. Finally, use them to capture, recruit and brainwash more children. And so the cycle continues and so do the questions. Why were these children born? Why does God do nothing to stop it when he could with a simple word? Now think about the last time that you stood at the hospital bedside of someone you loved. If you had the power, would you have hesitated in healing them instantly? Of course not. Why? Because you love them and yet we know that God loves us. So why doesn't he do something? If we, who don't have the power but do have the desire to relieve suffering and God has the power, does nothing, Are we more moral than God? Some reply that God is sovereign and that therefore we should not question God. But what kind of blind sheep head in the sand Christians does that make us? Do we really have to abandon all reason just to be a Christian? Many atheists think so. However, God says, come now and let us reason together. That's Isaiah 1 verse 18. God expects us to ask questions, ask the hard questions and to reason with him on all of these issues. For instance, what about the floods in China right now? Is God indiscriminately punishing so many innocent people, many of whom are devout Christians, because he doesn't like the Chinese Communist Party? We who are fallen, sinful human beings know this would not be just. Is God worse? In times of intense, undeserved pain and suffering, glib answers from Christians like, oh, God cares for you, just have faith, or don't ask why, can really ring hollow. And to a non-believer, they're nothing short of ludicrous. It's no wonder if you check out atheists' lists of hard questions to ask Christians, this one is at the top. They've heard so many crazy answers, they're super confident they will have a gotcha moment. In fact, A quick search this morning listed this as the number one question that Christians can't answer. It stated, Why would the Abrahamic God, all-loving, all-powerful, allow natural evils to torment and kill people? Why can't he keep kids from getting cancer or stay the waves of tsunamis? In the end, religion, despite centuries of theologizing, hasn't begun to provide credible answers to the gaudy puzzle above. Ergo, there remains good evidence for atheism in the yawning gaps of religious understanding. And for many Christians, being asked this question is their worst fear. And not just Christians, because all the world's great religions, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Sikhism, would agree that God is love. But the good news is that the Bible has the answer. And it is a truly wonderful answer. And we are going to discover it tonight. Oh, wow, Lyle. I think everybody right now is all ears because this is a really important subject and you've raised some really good questions and I I really enjoyed that. This is one of the most critical subjects that we really could raise 
because unless you have an answer to this subject, then you really have a no reason to be a follower of God. You know, exactly. regardless of what religion that you serve, if that religion is a religion that has a God of love, which is the vast majority of our world today. So I'm really looking forward to hearing where you're going to take us in our Bible study, but I just need to make a couple of announcements to our viewers who are viewing or even listening via radio. We have a lot of people tuning in on Faith FM and we value all of you. There is a free offer connected with each presentation and you just heard Lyle talk about a book called The Great Controversy, which... Yes. It was life-changing. It was, along um, with the Bible. Along with the Bible. So, look, if you would like to obtain your free copy of that book, this is what the cover looks like. It's called The Great Controversy. If you would like to obtain it, please text the word justice to the number on your screen. And for those on radio, 0428-833-386. And I just want to say, in relationship to that book, yeah. it's full, if you've enjoyed the history and you've enjoyed the prophecy that we've been able to cover here on the on the Digital. You will love this book because it's all about history and prophecy and it has the best Bible study answer on tonight's subject that I have read anywhere. Whoa, that was a really good plug. So text the keyword justice to the number. And it was written by your great, 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 great grandmother-in-law. In-law, yeah. <laughs> That's right. And also, if you would like to talk with us about tonight's presentation, if you want to chat with someone about it, Text the word chat uh, to the same number, 0428-833-386. Now, Lyle, we have a question that's come in from a YouTube viewer. We'll okay, so we've got a few questions before we get to our subject. Well, just one. Okay. I, I'm just giving everyone a heads up that one person sent in the question on the rich man and Lazarus. I'm oh, bring it up yes. A little bit later because it's important. That's a good question. I'm so glad you asked. Yes. Um, but here is a question from uh, John Cummings on Facebook. And he's asked, are the sons of God in Job 1.6 the same as the 24 elders in Revelation? You know, that's a really interesting question. The thing that fascinates me about that question is that this one came in during the week. Mm -hmm. And Charissa showed it to me before we actually went um, on air here this evening. And I'm like, put that question first, because what I didn't realize you know, when it came through, I'd only heard the question tonight. Tonight's Bible study starts in Job chapter 1 and talks about the sons of God. So that's exactly what we're going Perfect. to study. So Perfect. why don't we just jump in there okay. in Job chapter 1 and begin our Bible study. All right. Job chapter so, 1. Yeah, let's, uh, what, what I've got here is a passage. Um, it incorporates verses from verses 1 through 12. So, Sharissa, if you could share that with us, we'll get the story to start with. Sure. The Bible says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys and a very large household. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered and said and answered the Lord and said from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it then the Lord said to Satan have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth a blameless and upright man one who fears God and shuns evil so Satan answered the Lord and said does Job fear God for nothing have you not made a hedge around him, around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. 
And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so this passage here is one of those rare passages in the Bible where you get a behind-the-scenes view of the controversy that there is that exists between God and Satan. It's like God peels back the curtain and shows us what is actually going on behind the scenes. So that makes this passage incredibly important. Now, the book of Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible. Um, This is a story that happened a very long time ago. We don't have a date for it, but we know it happened a very, very long time ago. It happened long before uh, the death of Jesus. Um, it happened long before you know, the, the resurrection that take, took place then, etc. And so we can summarise the story a little bit like this, the sons of God. Mm-hmm. It's a day when the sons of God have gathered together. All right, well, who are the sons who of God? Who are the sons of God? <laughs> we need to find out who are the sons of God. We and do. we're going to stay within Scripture because that is where you must stay in relationship to this subject. And the Bible, in the Bible, you're only going to find three different possibilities for the sons of God. Okay. Okay, so let's eliminate them. First of all, there is the Son of God. Mm-hmm. Okay? That's Jesus Christ. But the Bible talks about the sons of God, plural. Then I'm wondering whether you can read for us 1 John 3 and verse 1. Sure. The Bible says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Okay, so the righteous, those who have given their lives to Jesus Christ, those who have made a surrender to him, the Bible says that we are the sons and daughters of God. That's fairly simple and straightforward. Yeah. Uh, now, clearly, this is not this kind of a situation happening here because this is happening in heaven, not on this earth. Mm-hmm. All right. So then we have one more option as to who the sons of, might, of God might be. And I'm wondering whether you can read for us from Luke chapter 3 and verse 38. Sure. It says here, Adam, the son of God. Why, does the, why do you think the Bible says that Adam is the son of God? I mean, if you read Luke chapter 3, you're going to read that there is a genealogy there. And this person gave birth to this person gave birth to this person gave birth. And it goes from Jesus, you know, all the way back to Adam. And when it comes to Adam, it doesn't say that anybody gave birth to Adam. It says he was the son of God. Why would the Bible say that? God made him. Yes, that's right. So he is the father. Adam is the father of the human race. He is the representative of this this world and he is the one who would be in charge of this planet as the father of the entire race if sin had not come into our world and brought death with it and Adam had died. Okay, so now you've got three different options right here. Clearly when the Bible talks in Job chapter 1 about the sons of God, it's not talking about Jesus because they are sons, plural. That's right. It's not talking about sons and daughters of God here on this earth, because we're here on this earth and this is in heaven. Mm-hmm. So then we think about somebody like Adam. And the question goes a little bit like this. Well, actually, how big is our universe? Who and what exists out there? Now, some Christians take a very, very limited view on God. And they say, yes, God is eternal. And God is love. But throughout all eternity, God created lots of planets and stars, but never created other beings. Now, we know that at the very least, that the universe is full of angels. Mm-hmm. That's the Bible is clear on that. But what is the possibility that there's more than that? 
Let's look and read what the Bible says. I want you to start for us in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. If you could read that one for us, please. Yeah, the Bible here says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? Okay, so when the Bible speaks about Lucifer here, this is speaking about the time that he falls. Now, we know that when Lucifer comes, when Satan comes to this earth, he's already fallen. That's right. Okay. And the Bible says, and this is speaking about that time that he falls. And when it talks about the time that he falls, I want you to notice what the Bible says. The Bible says, you who weakened past tense, the nations. Mm -hmm. So clearly Satan has been up to something in the past, hasn't he? That's right. He has been deceiving. He has been tempting the universe. You know, do we really think that God lived in a vast empty desert for all of eternity and suddenly came up with the idea, oh, let's create some humans on this one tiny speck of dust called planet Earth? He's a creator. He's a creator. That's God's nature. He's created by nature. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, we're going to look at a whole bunch of Bible verses on this subject because we need to make it really clear from Scripture. Uh, The Bible says that Satan weakened the nations before he came down here. What nations were those? Ah, Sharissa, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. All right. Then God would use the church to show the powers and authorities in the spiritual world that he has many different kinds of wisdom. Okay, so the Bible says that there is more than what we just see here. There are powers and authorities. And exactly what that is, I don't know. But clearly the Bible is saying that there are people in charge of things. Mm -hmm. There is authorities, plural. All right. Let's go a little bit further in that same book, uh, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. Here the Bible says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Okay, so there's not just Satan that is here on this planet. The Bible talks about the rulers of darkness. There are rulers, there are evil angels that are active here, and that is just a part of God's universe. Wow. Yeah. It makes us suddenly feel like we're part of something a lot bigger. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And this is kind of critical to what we're talking about here. All right, one more. Oh, sorry, I've got a few more verses. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 9, Sharissa, can you read that one? We are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. Okay, now. Let me ask this question. The Bible says we're made a spectacle to the world. Who's that? The world. Everyone that's living on the world, right? Yep. Okay. So it starts off by saying we're made a spectacle to the world. And then it says we're made a spectacle to who? Angels. Angels. In other words, angels are looking on at what is happening here on this planet. Mm -hmm. There's an important reason why they are observing our planet. So it starts with the world. And then it says angels. And then it says what? To men. Well, who are they? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense if it's like we're a spectacle to the world and to angels and to the world. Mm. It makes no sense if we're a spectacle to the men and to angels and to men. You see, the Bible is ascending here. It starts on this planet, then it goes up to the angels, and then it goes another level higher. Mm. That makes us ask some questions right there, doesn't it? Revelation chapter 12, uh, we're going to look at some verses here between uh, verse 7 and 12. Uh, From verse... 
Chapter 12, starting in verse 7. 7? Yes. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. And the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you. I want you to notice here, this is the story of where evil began. It began when Satan rebelled in heaven, the most powerful angel that God had ever created. And then, you know, as a result of this rebellion, there was war in heaven. There was a controversy between God and Satan. Satan gets tossed out. He comes down to this world. And the reason that he comes down to this world is because we are the only world that has accepted Satan to come down to us. The only one. But then I want you to notice this last little bit here, Sharissa. Notice what it says. Therefore rejoice, you heavens. Plural. Did you catch that? That's another word for the cosmos. In other words, rejoice, you cosmos. And then it goes on and it says, and you that lives in it. Our universe, the Bible says, is full of life. And that life is able to observe what happens on this planet. Mm. Okay, so when we talk about the sons of God and we find that Adam was the son of God by creation, he should have been the representative of our planet, our world, but he wasn't. Two more verses, um, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 and 2 and then Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3. Whereabouts do the rest of the inhabitants of the universe live? Is our world the only one that exists? Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. The worlds. There you go. Plural. 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 There's lots of worlds out there. That's what the Bible says. Okay, and then, of course, in 11 verse 3, it says, By faith we understand that the worlds were formed by the word of God. Not Mm -hmm. just one world, but many of them. But guess, Lyle, what is the story of Job all about then? Job, what you have here is a gathering of the representatives of the worlds. Adam should have been there, but because Adam can't go, Satan turns up in Adam's place. Because Satan, well, basically Satan turns up and is like, oh, you know, God's like, where did you come from? He's like, oh, I came from planet Earth, you know, wandering around on planet Earth. I'm the representative of planet Earth. You know, Adam's not here because he's dead. So, you know, planet Earth, they've accepted me, so I will stand in in Adam's place. This is effectively what Satan is claiming. Wow. That's what I have to say to this. This is an amazing thing uh, that the Bible's describing here. And I think it's a perfect opportunity for me to give another plug to tonight's (laughs) free offer. Um, The Great Controversy, the book that Lyle mentioned before and a book that he says um, has some very good uh, help for us in understanding this topic tonight and in the Bible. So if you'd like to obtain your free copy of this book, please text the word justice to the number on your screen, 0428-833-386. Lyle, we should probably take some questions. Okay. I haven't actually looked at them while you were talking, but I I can see they're coming in thick and fast. Okay. So I'm going to read to you this one here is from Lily and she's watching on YouTube. Good to have you, Lily. Question. Did God know before he created Satan that he would rebel since he knew the beginning? Yeah, it's a really good question. Of course, God knows all things. And 
what God did when he created beings. And this is, a, this is a key thought that we're going to look at in detail as we go through tonight's subject. The Bible says that God is love. Now, the thing that creates the possibility of love is the power of choice. Without the power of choice, there's no such thing as love. You know, I can, I can program my computer right here to say, oh, I love you, Lila, I think you're amazing. But that computer will never love me because it doesn't have a choice but to do what I program it to do. This is the difference between a robot and a person. It's the power of choice. God will never violate the power of choice because the moment God violates the power of choice, love ceases to exist. And so when God creates in the universe, if God is love, then God is going to create beings that have the power of choice. And the moment that you create beings that have the power of choice, you have created the possibility of evil. And so if you're going to create beings that have the power of choice, then you have to have a plan as to what you will do, how you will respond if evil one day arises. Very good point. This one is a comment that came after the previous presentation was aired on one of the topics that we've done, and it's on YouTube, and they said they disagree with you on something. Um, clearly, you don't understand the mysteries that were given to Paul, and sadly, you're leading many to hell unsaved or to the seven years tribulation that is just ahead. Now, the seven years tribulation, do you have a comment on that? Yes. I'd like to challenge you. If you really believe I'm leading people to hell, then here's my challenge for you, and you can add this into the comments on YouTube. Find for me anywhere in the writings of Paul that mentions a seven-year tribulation. In fact, find for me anywhere in Scripture that mentions a seven-year tribulation. There's my challenge. If it's not in the Bible, why do you believe it? And if it's not in the Bible, then who's the one who's leading people to destruction? All right. This is also a second part to the previous one. Hell, the very place they said you were lying about and say doesn't exist. Many slip into every day, wishing that someone would warn their family of the very place their soul is stuck in forever, never getting out. Just like the rich man also wanting someone to be raised up to warn his family. But he was told by Abraham they have Moses and the prophets. And then they said, Luke 16, 25 to 31, it's here in God's word and you still don't believe. All right. So let's read the story of rich man, the rich man and Lazarus and you'll find that we'll go over to Luke chapter 16 and we can read the story there. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this one. It's an important one and it's a most interesting story that Jesus gives right here. And it's a story where, well, let's just read what it says because in reading this story, you've got two options. Either you take this story literally or you take it symbolically and allegorically. Those are the only two options you have. You can't have your cake and eat it too. So let's find out. Is God, telling a, is God giving us a literal description of what hellfire is like in this passage? Or is God giving us a symbolic, allegorical lesson that we can learn from? So let's read it. Uh, where were we? Uh, Luke chapter 16 and verse 19, the Bible says there was a certain rich man. He was clothed in purple and fine linen and fed sumptuously every day. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. 
and in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and likewise Lazarus, Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed so that you cannot, neither can they pass to us who would come from there. Then he said, I pray you, therefore, my father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he might may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. He said, no, father Abraham, but if one went to the, from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one went from the dead. The question is, is Jesus in this parable trying to convey a literal impression of what hellfire is like? Or is Jesus speaking symbolically and allegorically to teach a really important lesson? Now, what I'm going to point out is this. Jesus did not want us to take this literally. And Jesus went to extraordinary lengths to ensure that no one would ever make the mistake of taking this particular passage literally. Of course, he's quoting from, you know, he's borrowing from uh, Greek concepts of the time. So let's work our way through it for a moment and let's ask a few questions about the par parable. Mm -hmm. First of all, if all the righteous when they die go to Abraham's bosom, they're being hugged by Abraham. How big is Abraham? Must be enormous. Yes. And if we all desire to go there and spend eternity there, how sore are our arms going to become and how bored are we going to become? Yeah. You start to see what's happening here. Jesus is using extreme language so that, we, so that he, he can make absolutely sure that we don't ever possibly take this literally. But it gets better. If it's necessary for someone the righteous, when they go to heaven to rest in somebody's bosom, who's Abraham resting in? Mm. You know, how, how does that actually work? Good question. Uh, the Bible says that there's a great gulf, you know, between heaven and hell. Why couldn't they see that? You know, you would think that would be really obvious. They're asking questions. Now, this is a really important question. If hellfire is something that lasts for eternity. And you can see hellfire from heaven. And there are people in hellfire that you dearly loved. And you can go and see them anytime you want, as is depicted here. Then what kind of heaven is that? Do you really want to be there? That'd be awful. That'd be the worst kind of torture. Doesn't sound like heaven to me. <laughs> Here's another question. What does the rich man ask for? A drop of water. Whereabouts do you want it? On his tongue. On the tip of his tongue. One drop on the tip of his tongue. You see, Jesus is using bizarrely extreme language to ensure we never make the mistake of taking this passage literally. Mm. If I was in hellfire or something, don't give me a drop of water on the tip of my tongue. Give me a fire hose. <laughs> Absolutely. I need something a little bit more than that. Okay. Um, and then, of course, you know, the whole passage 
is, you know, literal bodies. There's no disembodied souls here. This is all literal bodies. Read the, read the passage. This is, this is not what... This, does, this passage doesn't support, it, it, you know, disembodied souls burning in hellfire eternally. It's the worst possible passage that you can read if you want to support that because they're all literal bodies. There's no sight nor sound of a disembodied soul anywhere in it. So what is the parable all about? Okay, the rich man symbolises the, the Hebrew nation that is rich in the word of God. Lazarus is associated with the dogs and the dogs to the Hebrew nation were the Gentiles who are poor in the word of God. The Gentiles end up getting into heaven before the children of God do the Jewish people do, of, of the time, mm-hmm. because he's believing the word of God. And so then uh, the question is, well, send somebody back from the dead. And interestingly, the person who is going to be sent back from the dead, his name is Lazarus. Jesus says, look, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe it even if someone comes back from the dead. And then a year or so later, he raises someone from the dead who'd been dead for four days, whose name was Lazarus, and they went out to plot how to kill him before he gained too much more power. Here's a really good point, Slyle. That's what Um, the parable is all about. Unless you believe the Old Testament, you will never, Jesus says, believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the rich man and Lazarus. We should get back to our Bible study. Yeah, yeah. Where are we up to? Can I shoot one very, 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 very difficult question to you? It's really quick. Okay. This is from Teresa on YouTube. Lyle, we love your jumpers. Do you or your wife buy them and where? Okay, so my <laughs> wife buys them and I have no idea where. Okay. I open my drawer, there are jumpers in it. I take a jumper out, usually the one that's sitting on top, and then my wife tells me, no, that jumper doesn't go there, so then I have to go and change it. All right. All right, take me back to the Bible study. All right, so here's, we've got, here's what we've got. we've got. We're in Job. We've got a gathering of the sons of God. They're gathered together in this council. Satan turns up and tries to pass himself off as being, you know, the ruler of this planet uh, in, in place of Adam. He's there to represent this planet. And God asks him a question. God challenges him like, oh, you're the ruler of planet Earth, are you? Oh, that's interesting. So, you know, what about my servant Job? Has he accepted you as his ruler? Does everybody down there on planet Earth accept you? And, of course, Satan has to come back with a reply. And Job is fabulously wealthy. And so he just turns around and says, look, basically, in effect, um, God, you're Job's sugar daddy. Of course, anyone, anyone who you give stuff to like that is going to serve you. Take what he's got. And he'll curse you to his face. Now, here's the thing. Satan has made an accusation right here, hasn't he? And he's made it in front of the gathering of the sons of God, the representatives of the universe. He's placed God on the spot. He's challenged God. And in effect, what he's said is love is not real. You're down there on planet Earth buying people's allegiance. Nobody actually really serves you because they love you. You've just paid for it. That's not real. That's not the power of choice. That's not love. And so God has a couple of options that he could do right here. God could be like, okay, Satan, be gone. Mm -hmm. He has the power. He's sovereign God. If he did that, what impression would that leave in the minds of the whole representatives of the universe that have gathered together? They'd be fearful of God. Yeah, they'd be fearful of God. They'd be like, wait a minute, Satan's got a really valid point. You know? We can see in this situation, at least, love is not real. The whole thing is a farce. And Satan would be justified and God would be condemned. Now, do you think God wants to see Job hurt? Not at all. Not at all. 
But here's what God does. God says, okay, you can, you, he's in your hands. Just don't take his life. That's not going to prove anything if you take his life. And so to cut a long story short, Satan comes down to earth. He begins and he destroys all of Job's possessions. In one day, he becomes impoverished. Then he kills all of his family except of his wife. He leaves his wife alive because his wife is, as it turns out, his servant. Um, and then he destroys his health in a very, very painful way. Now, let's think about this for a moment. In all of this, Job remained faithful to God because he loved God. He truly loved God with his whole heart. He didn't budge. And as a result of that, Satan ended up with egg on his face. You know, because the whole universe, they're all looking on. Like, oh, is Satan right or is God right? Well, clearly God is right and Satan is a fool. And Satan is just a cruel, heartless tyrant who has created all of this trouble. Now, because we have this story in the Bible, we can see behind the scenes. But what if you were Job? What would you see? How much would you understand? Oh, not much. Just what's in front of you. And see, here's the thing. This is the big picture versus the little picture. We see what is happening in the universe through a pinhole. God sees everything. And the allegiance of the universe was at stake in this story right here. The stakes were that high. God didn't want to see Job suffer, but he also wasn't going to lose the allegiance of the universe and, in one move, eradicate the existence of love. All right, that's only part yeah. of the story. Now, Lyle, just so yes. you know, the clock is ticking. Oh, it's ticking. I've got a little bit too excited here, haven't I? It was really good, though. We should, we should probably do some more verses. Let's push on okay. and let's see if we've got okay. some, some time. I promised some extra question time tonight. It's okay. We'll be back on tomorrow night. That we will. We will. <laughs> That's the good part about it. Okay. Uh, where are we up to? Let's talk about um, Satan yep. and the origin of Satan. And why didn't God stop him from sinning in the first place? Exactly. You got some passages for us there? Yeah. Well, which, where would you Let's like to go? Let's go to Isaiah. Okay. Let's start in Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 12, verse, sorry, 14, verse 12 to 16. All right. It says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Interesting passage. This talks about right. Satan when he first sins and he first falls. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to pull off a coup in heaven. I'm going to sit on the, side, on the throne of God on the sides of the north, on the mountain of God. It's going to be me. I'm going to be number one in the universe and I'm going to topple God off his throne. Now, God is all-knowing. And this action, this attempt by Satan to do this would have begun in his mind long before it happened in reality. Mm. Maybe centuries before. We don't know. And the moment that seed came into Satan's mind, God would have known. And so why didn't God just immunize the universe and zap Satan? What, would the, what, what effect that would that have had? If you were one of the beings in the universe and Satan was walking along someone someday and he suddenly got snapped. 
I'd think that maybe the accusations or things that he'd said about God might be true. Yes. Maybe God is a dictator. Maybe. You see, it's a little bit like this. If God had zapped Satan simply because Satan disobeyed God, just instantly zapped him right then and there, the rest of the universe, who up until this point, why are they serving God? Up before they Satan comes, because they love him, right? They're all the whole universe is serving God because they love him. The moment that Satan got zapped, if that was to happen, why would they be serving God? Fear. So that they didn't get zapped themselves. Mm-hmm. And in one move, God would have eradicated love from the universe. It would have ceased to exist. So God is a God of love. So let's read another passage here. This one comes from Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12 to 18. Here the Bible says, You seal up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You have been in Eden, the garden of God. You are the anointed cherub that covers. You are upon the holy mountain of God. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created till iniquity was found in you. Therefore will I bring forth fire from the middle of you. It shall devour you and I will bring you to ashes upon the earth. Okay. All right, and some people come to me, and, and, and it's good to see that Satan gets turned into ashes as well. We certainly read a lot of verses about that the other night. Now, a lot of people come to me on this and they say, well, why didn't God just make it impossible for Satan to sin? Why didn't God make it impossible for Adam and Eve to sin? And we wouldn't be in this problem right now. What would be the problem with that, Charissa? It was impossible for us to sin. Well, we wouldn't have choice. And if we didn't have choice? We couldn't love God. And we couldn't feel love. We couldn't experience love. Love would not exist. And so God, if God had wiped out the power of choice, if God had made it impossible for us to sin, love would not exist. So how is God then going to preserve love in the universe? And so here's God's challenge. God is going to create beings that have the power of choice because he is love. And that's what creates love. He is going to, because he's creating beings with the power of choice, there's kind of almost an inevitability that sooner or later in the context of eternity, one will choose against him. Mm -hmm. And so then what do you do? Well, you want to have a clean universe that is free from pain. And so how are you going to accomplish that? Because sin is going to bring pain and sin is going to bring death. Well, then you do what we do when there's a pandemic. There's a pandemic right now, is we try and eradicate the virus. The problem is the only way you can eradicate the virus is by eradicating those who have it. This is why the wages of sin is death. God wants to cleanse the world, the universe of sin, so there's none left. But the problem is how do you then do that in such a way as that sin will never come back? The Bible says that sin will never, ever come back again. Yeah. Okay, so if sin is never coming back again then um, how, how, does, how does God ensure that that never happens while maintaining the power of choice? He's got two options. He can do away with the power of choice. Sin will never come back. Love is gone. Or he can leave the power of choice and he can prove that Satan is wrong. 
I feel like you're about to land this in a very powerful spot. So just before I let you land it, I just want to tell our viewers our time has run out tonight and we want to remind you there is a free offer connected with this. We would really urge you to get your hands on this by simply texting the word justice to the number on your screen 0428-833-386 or if you want to talk with somebody more about tonight's presentation, text the word chat and we will also connect with you. But Lyle, take us out on your final thought. Okay, so here's, here's how it works. There's an old saying that goes, if you give a man enough rope, he will hang himself. And so here's what God has done. God has said, I'm not going to destroy sin immediately. I'm going to destroy sin at the end of time. But I'm going to give sin time. Why? So that the entire universe can see the results for themselves. And when they have seen the results of sin, they will never want to go there, not because they're afraid of God, but because they have seen and they know and they never want to have it. I mean, if you're out in the universe right now in a world that is perfect and clean and pure and you look at this planet, would you really want to come to this planet? There is no way in a million years would you want this that we have here, the pain, the suffering, the injustice that we have here on this planet to go to another planet. And so by allowing it to continue for a set period of time, God ensures that number one, the power of choice is never taken away. And number two, sin will never come back, not because God is forcing people not to be able to sin, but because God is showing them the results of what sin is. God has a perfect plan. The challenge with that perfect plan is that by allowing sin to continue, the only way he could save us was by giving his life on Calvary. And it was going to cost God, and it cost God tremendously. Jesus died so that we could have eternity. I mean, let's face it, Sharissa, if you get to, you know, heaven, the new earth, are you going to want to start what we have here in this world again? Are you going to go like, yeah, one day I think I might start sin again? Never again. Never again if you're in a perfect universe. You've got the power to. Power of choice will always be there, but you've seen it, you've experienced it, and you will never want to have it back again. That's why God allows it to continue for a set period of time, and then at the end of time, it ends, never return. That's the good news. That's the best news there is. And so we hope that you will come back and join us tomorrow night at 8 p.m. as we continue this journey, the end of time series. Uh, it's never been more relevant than right now. And tomorrow night, it'll be on the time of the end. Yes. So, so we talked about the end of time tomorrow night, the time of the end. All right. Which is different from the end of time. Don't, don't worry if you got confused there. I did too. <laughs> Just come back tomorrow night, 8 p.m. We look forward to seeing you then. God bless. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.